I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Thank you all so much for your feedback about Jay's story and we'll let you all know when he publishes his first episode on the Skeeters Strength Mindset Coaching Podcast. All right, so after his episode and the episode prior to that about truth, what I wanted to start talking about is how we can have a better idea of relationships, how to better understand the way relationships work and what happens when we have borderline personality disorder or intense emotions and how that contributes from early childhood till today in the development of a, of a stormy relationship. The reason why I wanted to go this direction, interestingly enough, is, you know, I, I listened myself again to Jay's story and I knew that about him very early on, um, before we started dating, you know, in the beginning, he had told me, you know, his story. And interestingly enough, I did lack mindsight, which is the ability to really comprehend how another person perceives the world around them. And because of that, I had sympathy, but yet definitely deficits in empathy at the time. And so when I would be in an episode early on before we had broken up the first time, and you can, if you're new to the podcast, you know, the the first season, I share my story and that would give some context to what I'm talking about. Um, but yet, so I would, I would have these episodes and I would go, you don't know what it's like. You don't know, you know, how bad I feel or you know, you'll never love me the way I love you. And then, you know, listening to that, his story now, and even having come to terms with that, I mean, of course he did, right? And he absolutely knew what pain was, what being abandoned felt like, what, you know, trauma felt like. And yet, even knowing his story, there was this switch that shut off and I just couldn't grasp that concept. And so I want to start a series with you guys on understanding relationships. So, you know, the first thing that I really wanted to touch on is that, you know, we really need to be physically safe and to feel emotionally secure in a relationship. Because having a safe place to return to means that when we feel distressed or when we're in pain or injured, we know that there's a way that we can you know, have a roadmap to provide for our emotional well-being. Feeling safe provides a secure base from which to go out and explore the world and then gradually learn how to be self-reliant, how to play and explore confidently, and then when there are problems, feeling confident to problem-solve or to seek help to learn how to solve that problem. So part of this sense of security is knowing that distress can be soothed whether it arises from something threatening in the environment or just because we've been separated as infants from a parent or as children, a strong sense of attachment would provide that confidence to face that distress because there's reassurance that that parent will calm emotions. Over time in early childhood, this external regulation of emotions from the primary caregiver would gradually become internalized, ideally, and then we would learn how to self-regulate as we learn to understand and regulate our emotions. So in addition to attachment, 
that provides the secure base for development of being an independent person, of regulating your emotions. What that also would have done for us is support us in exploring our inner world, the world of minds. So we mainly learn about minds as we grow, minds meaning emotions, intentions, motives, not through being taught information about minds, but through a process of social feedback. As with learning any complex skill, right, we need feedback on our attempts. We need somebody to help guide and coach us. And the emotional responses of our caregivers reflect our emotional states in facial expression and tone of voice, right? This enables us as human beings to develop an awareness of what we are experiencing and to make sense of what we are thinking and feeling. Not only is social feedback important, but teaching by example is also important. Just as having a coach show you how to do something helps you learn the skill, it seems that mindsight or mentalizing the ability to understand the inner state of someone else develops well in families where there's a lot of discussion about feelings and where people are really attempting, at least attempting, right, to understand what everyone is experiencing. So for all you loved ones out there, caregivers, parents, it might seem that learning about minds requires absolute safety or perfect parenting, but I assure you that this is not true. In reality, what is required is good enough parenting. So parents who get it right most of the time and who then would repair a misunderstanding when they got it wrong, quote unquote, right? Perfect responsiveness. So if a parent was perfect, it would inhibit the growth of mentalizing in personality. So it would come with a whole other set of challenges because then that child wouldn't have been exposed to challenges that they would have to rise to and to understand different issues faced in relationships. So children need challenges, problems to solve, and difficulties to overcome, and opportunities to learn that if somebody in a relationship makes a, a mistake, that hurts can heal right? That things can be healed. Now, we know that people with borderline personality disorder have problems with mindsight or mentalizing. Usually, your ability to have mindsight switches off like a light switch too easily when emotions are high or stirred up or intense. The more people study how mindsight develops, the more it seems that how securely we felt ourselves to be attached in childhood is linked to the development of mindsight. So it makes sense, right, that studies have also found that people with BPD also have had problems feeling securely attached. So is that good news or bad news? Well, on one hand, it's good news. What it means is that we have this understanding of the central problem behind why people with borderline personality disorder have emotional dysregulation. And, you know, and these, that's, that's important, right? We need to know that. But on the other hand, we do know a bit about the sorts of things that disrupt attachment and mentalizing. You know, we don't know everything, right? So it's good news and bad news because, we do have limited knowledge, but what we do know is that people can grow and change. We have neuroplasticity, right? 
So let's look. What are some factors that contribute to secure an, an attachment, right? Because even though there's limited knowledge, what we don't want to do is blame people. This like BPD is your fault, right? It's it's this person's fault. It's this person's fault because there are so many factors. So here are some of those. Inherited temperament, culture, family background, whether or not there was enough economic opportunities, biochemical changes, and biology. And many of those factors, a person isn't able to control. They're not aware of it. So even if what might be behind problems and attachment can never be known for sure, if we know these factors, right, it just kind of points the way ahead so more research can be done. All right, so on the other hand, experiences that obviously disrupt a sense of safety and secure attachment are likely to disrupt the development of having this mindset. So major traumas are these experiences that would disrupt a sense of safety, even perception of trauma, right? So something that is traumatic to somebody who is hyperbolic is still traumatic because they are so sensitive that they feel it in that way. So major traumas absolutely can contribute to a disruption in the ability to understand the inner mind of someone else. Now, if a family can support the individual who goes through the trauma and talk about what happened and really help with understanding the big picture, that can actually be a protective factor. But let's say that that didn't happen with you. So it seems that you know, through research, the majority of people with borderline personality disorder actually have had significant negative experiences of one kind or another, right? We're sensitive. So we do have to address the impact of those experiences and also understand that there is no one contributing factor. All right, so let's look at the bigger picture. So the bigger picture is that the opportunity to reflect on minds in safety is the key factor that will develop the underdeveloped neural circuits involved in this mentalizing or mindsight ability, right? So what I'm saying essentially is that in order to understand relationships, we have to look at early childhood and what the attachment patterns were and what broke down. And we can't just blame one thing or point to one thing. We have to understand that there are multiple factors here, right? And then we also have to understand that we can develop the underdeveloped neural circuits that turn off when emotions are stirred. So there's a way out. There is a roadmap out, right? So if you find someone you can work with that you can trust then you can hear what they're saying, have this open mind to another possibility, then you can really start to develop this part of your brain. So let's talk about patterns of connection. So our brains are pattern-making machines. This is how we, f- that we form this roadmap. This is how we heal and we begin this recovery journey. Our, ba- our brains are searching for patterns. They're continuously organizing information by looking at the vast array of experiences confronting us. The early patterns that we have from our childhood experiences are organized around attachment to a caregiver and to significant other people in our lives. And our ongoing experiences, so the things you kind of experience day in and day out of those attachment relationships in relation to our feelings, our needs, and our safety also play into those patterns. 
Different patterns develop according to a range of factors. When everything goes well, a child grows up to feel secure in relationships. Other times, different patterns of relating develop. The attachment pattern that develops in childhood often shapes how a person relates to others. New relationships are often viewed in light of earlier experiences. So if you are in a new relationship, you might start to look at your brain might organize that relationship based on an earlier pattern, which would influence a relationship pattern as an adult. So if you find yourself choosing people who are like a caregiver or, you know, doing kind of some some pattern behavior, this is why we have to look at the way our brain organizes information. The challenging aspect of these patterns is that they're established at a time when we're not aware of what's happening, right? When you're two, three, four years old, you're not aware. And they're passed on, you know, by way of a process that occurs below our level of awareness. So they end up feeling entirely natural to us, even though we're reacting to current relationship opportunities based on old experiences. So living in a memory. A person who feels secure in their relationships. So let's talk about attachment a bit. So a person who feels secure in their relationships reaches out for contact and comfort in times of distress. They're confident that another person will be accessible and emotionally responsive. Feeling secure in their relationship, these people would anticipate that the person they've attached to, their attachment figure, will have their mind in mind. Think of them. Their relationship will be calming and restoring both emotionally and physiologically. For example, they'll be able to make sense of their distress. They'll think of the other person, and the other person will think of them. There will be continual mindsight or mentalizing. Another pattern is avoidance. A person who is avoidant of close relationships is dismissive of attachment. They adopt a self-sufficient stance with a sense of, I don't really need anyone to provide me comfort. This avoidant or dismissing stance works reasonably well, right? As long as the distress remains, you know, within a certain boundary. But it isn't an effective strategy for coping with high levels of distress. Another pattern is ambivalence. A person who is ambivalent about attachment is often preoccupied with relationships. They're highly ambivalent, feeling anxious and in need, yet also feeling vulnerable to abandonment and resentful of the other person's failings, right? So this is kind of maybe push-pull, you can think of it as. So you're anxious, but you have a lot of needs, you're vulnerable, you want the person to be with you, but the attachment is actually marked by a combination of being dependent and hostile, and really a lot of conflict and discord, and the relationship is stormy. I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? Finally, a person can end up with a disorganized pattern of relating because of a history of traumatic attachment relationships may have left them with zero strategy for relationship maintenance. They only know that relationships make them feel highly anxious and they feel isolated from attachments. So your predominant attachment pattern determines to a large extent how you deal with close relationships. But you have to know that it's not fixed, right? So your attachment 
strategy is not fixed. I'm going to say it one more time. Your predominant attachment strategy is not fixed. It can absolutely change through taking risks in new relationships. So I want you to see if you can kind of connect this to some work to do for the week, and then we'll come back and I'll talk a little bit about this some more in part two next week. So I just want you to go forward this week, get your journal and make some notes in the week of examples where you are becoming mindfully aware of where you respond to people in ways that indicate you feeling secure, seeking comfort, relying on support, feeling avoidant when you do that, which is where you're feigning self-sufficiency, right? Like pretending you don't need anyone. And then other times where you respond to people ambivalently, where you say you want support, but then you're anxious about receiving it. You want to make note of what's difficult also to talk about in a close relationship and why it was difficult. Remember, bringing behavior into mindful awareness is one of the best ways that we can begin the process of change. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's segment and series on attachment and understanding relationships. Next week, we are going to continue to talk about this idea of mindset. Have a good week. for listening that was from borderline the beautiful a production of skeeter's strength mindset coaching systems we help frustrated individuals resentful couples and disconnected families navigate through tough times visit us on the web at skeeterstrength.com if you like this show remember you can hear it on anchor or apple podcasts or pocket cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts subscribe to get a new episode every monday if you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So, if you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful, hope and help for individuals with BPD.